ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, season's greetings and welcome to our Health Report Summer Listening. I'm Norman Swan coming to you from Gadigal Land. And I'm Tegan Taylor on Jagera and Turrbal Land. Today, what happens when people try to get a clinical diagnosis of Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder or ADHD? And later, how chatbots rate on showing empathy as well as giving advice when people ask them for a professional medical opinion. Attention has been drawn over the past year to the thousands of people seeking an assessment for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD. There's been a Senate inquiry and its report last month listed 15 recommendations for improving care. The government now has until early February to respond. Earlier in the year and before the report came out, ABC journalist Angela Vapier made a feature about what life's been like for some of these people. And I asked whether her approach has been slightly unusual. Mm, Yeah, you could say that. Long story short, so like a lot of millennial women during the pandemic, I found myself being fed a lot of ADHD content on social media, not to mention hearing about friends' diagnoses and all of it sounded very familiar. So I started looking into a diagnosis and ultimately wound up at this one particular clinic. But when I went in for an assessment, there were a few things that surprised me, I suppose, about the experience. So firstly, I was diagnosed at the end of a single 45-minute telehealth session. Uh, It was an arts degree majoring in journalism, but they didn't, I never actually finished it. Number nine, like I said, I do interrupt people, but I've got better at it. I get really like angry in traffic. (laughs) There were no physical checks. And as for other mental health diagnoses, which I don't mind telling you I do have, I mentioned them. And in at least one instance, the psychiatrist I saw more or less said, no, no, we don't agree that you have that. And at the beginning of the second appointment, we were talking about meds. So basically, I wondered whether this car had fully functional brakes, which is maybe a weird thing for me to note in some ways, because obviously I wouldn't have been there if I didn't have a strong hunch that I had ADHD. So it does sound like an unusual process, but then Mm. there's these enormous fees. Yeah, the fees were a shock. So it was $950 for the first 45-minute... $950. Yeah, that's right. And then $800 for the follow-up, which was also 45 minutes. Um, And less than half of that came back to me on Medicare. And then there was this schedule of appointments going forward, priced around $350, and about two-thirds of that was out of pocket. So it does stack up. But then I started to look into it and I found that there were a number of clinics that were using a similar model to this and actually the fee that I was paying was at the lower end of the spectrum. My gosh. Mm. So what does a typical clinic look like? What sets them apart from others? Yeah, so I suppose much like ADHD itself, it's on a spectrum, they're not all the same (laughs) uh, and there are going to be instances where it's ambiguous but... In general, what we're talking about is a telehealth-only model with a strong or a sole focus even on assessment and diagnosis in the initial treatment phase of ADHD. You've got high fees, you've got high salaries coupled often with aggressive recruitment tactics and then a quick turnaround. Like in my case, it was 
as I said, a single session. So not a typical appointment with a psychiatrist. Mm -mm. What was it that convinced you then what you'd experienced was part of a bigger issue? Yeah, so as soon as we started talking to people about this, and we, we spoke to a lot of different people, we spoke to GPs, psychiatrists, we spoke to patient advocacy groups, they'd all noticed it to some degree. But most of all, patients reflected this. Patients such as Anita Wall, who's a 41-year-old social worker living in Melbourne. So I was ringing around trying to find different places and I, I did get one place and it was hit one for this, hit two for this, hit three for that and then hit four for ADHD assessments. So I hit that number and it didn't answer, it didn't ring, it just went to nothing and hung up. And it wasn't just one clinic, it was at least two or three where you'd hit that button and it would just go blank. You couldn't even leave a message. Welcome to the back of the queue for an ADHD psychiatrist in Australia. Make yourself at home. Anita joined the queue last year, even though she already had an ADHD diagnosis. The problem was she'd lost touch with her psychiatrist. Yeah, so when I went back to organise my biannual review... I was told by the clinic that he's no longer consulting from this clinic and that he's closed his books and no longer seeing clients. And I was not made aware of that. So their books were completely full. They couldn't help me. With no one to renew Anita's two-year permit, her supply of meds was dwindling. Biannual reviews haven't historically been this much of a nightmare, but right now there's a serious shortage of ADHD psychiatry services. My GP knew how much I was struggling trying to find a clinic to take me on. And so she gave me the name of a clinic who I then engaged. They were saying to me that I needed a complete new diagnosis and assessment, which was not true. When I challenged that, I was met with, no, 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 we do things differently And I thought, well, hang on a minute, that's not right. I'm not paying for a whole new diagnosis. She was quoted more than $1,500 for the re-diagnosis she didn't want, covering two telehealth appointments. And half of that was payable up front to secure the booking in the first place. And if she had been re-diagnosed and ended up on their treatment plan, the clinic would have collected almost $17,000 in fees as a result, covering a psychiatrist, a clinical psychologist, a GP and a dietitian. The out-of-pocket cost for Anita is harder to tally, but it would have landed somewhere between $4,300 and $12,000, depending on the timing of the appointments. Because at some point, Anita's Medicare safety net would have kicked in, meaning Medicare picks up 80% of the subsequent bills that year. Although no matter which way you cut it, the clinic would still have come away with that full amount, just shy of seventeen grand. It was disgusting and actually cashing in on people's disadvantage, which is just horrific. I challenged and I said, no, not on. And they didn't like my answer and I didn't pay anything and I walked away. And then that's when I, I, I cried and <laughs> thought it was hopeless. Eventually, she found a different psychiatrist who did her review, but not until after she'd run out of meds. I went unmedicated for probably about two months 
And I know that's not long, but it is for somebody that relies on the medication to get up in the morning, focus. It's important that we have that so that we can function. The access crisis has been showing up on ADHD helplines too. Well, there's definitely been an increase. So year on year, the call centres are getting flooded more and more with people who are in distress. Christopher Wiesman is a director and board member of the ADHD Foundation. The numbers have, you know, doubled, if not tripled. So we're looking at probably 30,000 by the end of this year. And he says a lot of those distressed calls are about fees. We're seeing clinics popping up everywhere and some of them are charging up to $3,000 for a diagnosis. $3,000, that is really at the upper end of what I've heard about. How common is that? Look, we have lots of anecdotal evidence to support that um, yeah, the fact that the $3,000 is not an uncommon number. It's not one assessment in isolation. It's a series of processes that these clinics design to justify, I suppose, the cost. There might be a small percentage that's covered, but the majority in the private system is unfortunately out of pocket. Some people will charge two, three, four, five, six hundred dollars, and they're the you know the reasonable people that aren't interested in gouging the markets. The average seems to be between fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred. Three thousand is certainly at the extreme, but there's a lot of people charging that. All specialists in Australia, and that includes psychiatrists, are able to charge whatever they want. There's no cap. But because the public system very rarely treats ADHD in adults, those patients are forced to either pay the market rate or go without treatment. And there's evidence that those dynamics are distorting salaries. The ABC has seen recruitment emails and text messages sent from multiple clinics to external psychiatrists promising enormous take-home pay. For example... We are hiring consultant psychiatrist. This is a text written in all caps lock, by the way, and there are three exclamation points after the word hiring, just to give you a sense of the tone. Over $900,000 per annum. Minimum income guarantee, $3,800 per day. Signing bonus, $3,000. It's entrepreneurial individuals who have seen a market need and have sought to exploit that need. They charge whatever they need to or whatever they can in order to secure the maximum amount of profit. And what they do is they seek to exploit the vulnerable. So I wanted to know what an experienced ADHD psychiatrist outside of this model of practice might make of it. My name is David Castle. I'm a professor of psychiatry, currently working in Tasmania, University of Tasmania. But the views I express here are obviously my own views and not necessarily those of my employer. I'm a psychiatrist of some 30 years standing. I've got a strong academic background as well as a clinical background. And like every psychiatrist I spoke to on and off the record whilst making this episode, Professor David Castle is very much aware of these clinics. I mean, I have heard these stories and I don't think that they uh, cover our profession with glory um, in that it seems at the upper end of that is really an excessive amount. You know, I always have an issue with making money out of human unhappiness and misery. And what I wanted to know was whether there was anything wrong with how the clinics like the ones Anita and I went to are running. For example, could paying all that money mean that a patient is more likely to be diagnosed? Well, I would hope that people who set themselves up in this way and are 
supposed experts would be, you know, honourable in terms of not making a diagnosis to suit the patient. But as they say, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You could fall into the trap if you're not vigilant about yourself of seeing everything as confirming a diagnosis. And then if you are charging a great deal of money, you also have people who almost expect a diagnosis. You know, I've come and I've paid, and therefore, how could you not diagnose me? So there are all of those sort of subtexts. Then there's the telehealth question. In particular, is that the right way to diagnose a person with ADHD, especially if a face-to-face appointment isn't an option? I don't think that it's the best way to do an initial assessment. And if the initial assessment is going to be your only assessment of that individual, my suggestion would be that that is not quite optimal. It doesn't mean that it's not valid, but you get a whole lot of clues and a whole lot of little items of clinical nous on a screen. You don't get the same human interaction and variation of expression and gaze and so forth. So valid, but not ideal. And he feels similarly about a lack of physical assessments. Well, psychiatrists wouldn't necessarily do a physical exam in the sense of, you know, having people unclothed and doing a full neurological examination. But somebody doing that is really important. Professor David Castle is less worried about the scenario of a single session diagnosis. But at the same time, it's not his usual habit. You know, you can do a very reasonable job in a single session, but my own practice is to have at least two. And if you're unclear about it, um, have another. And if too many corners are cut, the risk is missing something major that should be part of the clinical picture. You need to exclude other psychiatric disorders, as you quite correctly espouse, because you can get into misdiagnosis. And then on top of that are the fact that ADHD, as with many other psychiatric disorders, tend to fly in a flock with other disorders. So you have to do a proper assessment because, as you say, some of the treatments, stimulants in particular, can be quite dangerous in people with severe mood disorders, severe anxiety disorders, and psychotic disorders, and that all needs to be weighed up. So there is an argument to be made that the quality of care in some instances is being compromised, even when the fees are set at a premium. The whole thing was like really freaky because it cost two and a half thousand dollars. I thought it was a typo when I first read it because I was like, two and a half thousand dollars is a huge amount of money to put on something that I have no idea what it's going to mean and if it's going to be helpful and if it's going to make a difference. All up, it was just under two and a half thousand dollars, maybe like two thousand three hundred dollars. I was surprised, but I just, but when I thought about it, I thought, oh, I must be having quite a few sessions, but. Yeah, really, I think I was in there once or twice, a couple of phone calls, an hour all up of actual (laughs) sitting there physically talking. What is the kind of professional rationale, just trying to put ourselves in the shoes of these psychiatrists? What rationale could they offer? Well, I mean, they would say they highly trained, they gave many years of their life to their studies and they developed their skills and why shouldn't they be paid? But doctors, um, there is something different about doctors and I actually share this about doctors, um, is that we should be better. I think this is a failing, to my mind, of the systems because there should be caps around it, I think. I mean, building in a cap on the extra amount that you're allowed to charge, I think would go a long way towards resolving all this. But that will never happen because you know as well as I do, once people have been used to 
making a certain amount of money, they're not going to give that up very easily. Capping specialists' fees isn't the only idea getting around, though. A lot of people throw up their hands. They see this as an intractable problem or just wait for this wave to go away. No, no, it's not. You say there is a solution. Yes. I'm Dr Diane Grocott. I'm a psychiatrist. I've been doing psychiatry for about 30 years, but I've only been involved with ADHD for about 10. And I run an internet ADHD clinic. How many patients do you have? Probably about 800. Just you? Yes, I've got people on my books who I've seen. A lot of them are back with their GPs, so the GP is managing the medication and they'll come back and see me in two years' time for a review for their permit. Diane Grocott's clinic is mostly online, but she conducts her initial assessments face-to-face. Also, her fees aren't thousands of dollars. They're closer to the out-of-pocket cost of seeing a GP. And the reason we're hearing from her is that two years ago, she had a bad day, or two bad days, really, that led her to an idea. 2021, I opened my books for literally 48 hours and we had 70 new referrals. I reckon I went into emotional paralysis. I can't choose who's going to get fed because I was looking at all these, even if it's one paragraph. This is a student in year 12. They desperately have ADHD. If we could get them some medication, then they can probably get their uni course. Or this person has an ice problem and if they could have their ADHD treated, they might be able to get off the drugs and not go to jail. I, I was using meth about three years, three and a half years, but that was like everyday use. People were using it to get that massive dopamine release and I was using it to just feel normal. I just felt levelled instead of so frantic all the time. I was extremely different from everybody else and I knew something wasn't right, but I just didn't know where to go to talk to people about it. After that 48 hours of being forced to make a series of impossible choices, she decided to look beyond her clinic. And I connected with lots of other colleagues and said, we need to change the system. There aren't enough psychiatrists to see all the patients who need to be seen. We've got to get ADHD treatment into primary care, back into primary care, where it used to be 30 years ago. And to do that, though, you need trained GPs. So the whole point of training GPs would be to take the pressure off psychiatry as a whole, Remembering that underneath all this is a pretty basic supply and demand problem. In fact, Diane Grocott says GPs can already do more for ADHD patients than most of them realise. But for the moment, they're afraid to. It can be quite frustrating because the bulk billing doctor I went to, I felt like there was a little bit of disdain. There was, I, I, I can't say this 100%, but I, I did feel like he kind of just looked at me wanting to get stimulants when I came to him with a, like, hey, I have ADHD. What is it that GPs are afraid of? There's the stigma being seen as an easy mark, so then all the drug addicts will come saying, I've got ADHD, can you please prescribe for me? The fact that dealing with ADHD well takes time and sometimes it's just lack of training. There's a legal fear as well. GPs are concerned about whether they are able to prescribe. Look, some GPs don't understand that if their permit runs out, the same as with opiates, the GPs can give an emergency supply if necessary. There's so much misunderstanding and ignorance. So where some of them could have helped a little bit, they just don't know what to do. So we're trying to help them to understand that as well. Training GPs isn't the whole idea, though. The other half is more controversial. Trained GPs, probably credentialed, so they've sat an exam and they are safe 
to be able to treat ADHD with all of the comorbidities and initiate medication without that patient having to see a psychiatrist. It's actually skilling up all GPs, but some GPs having been credentialed to be allowed to initiate permits. And allowing select GPs to prescribe someone with ADHD stimulants in the first place could make a dent in the supply problem. But it would also be a big change, most likely with some critics, because a lot of doctors and policymakers feel strongly about maintaining the existing controls on those meds. That said, change is more likely now than at any other point in recent decades. The Senate inquiry into ADHD is explicitly considering the question of access to medication, on top of access to assessments, and whether ADHD should be covered by the NDIS. So, Ange, amazing stories there and just gobsmacking sums of money and Mm. really serious questions coming from David Castle there about the quality of care and whether, you know, like in your instance, they're not taking a full psychiatric history, they're not particularly interested Mm. in that. Mm. Your experience is anything to go by. So, you know, after doing this investigation into the model of care that diagnosed, do you have any doubts that they made the right call on your part? Yeah, look, I, I would be lying if I said that I hadn't had that thought. Although, you know, interestingly speaking to so many ADHD patients, every single person had had those doubts at some point. So it it might just be, uh, I guess, part of the territory. But look, I guess the counterbalance here, the thing that sort of puts my mind at rest is that I am yet to find a mental health professional who doesn't see this diagnosis in me, (laughs) which is oddly reassuring in a way. And look, I, I have to say as well that I've started medication, I've been on medication for a few months now, and it has made my life miles easier. For instance, I don't know that I would have finished this story for you, Norman, without it, which is kind of a fun irony, I think, for that corner of of the profession. Well, Angela Vapia, thanks very much for covering that for us on The Health Report. Thanks, Norman. In the world of online medical help, chatbots like ChatGPT are now one of the options. You send off your concerns and you get advice back. But is that advice any good? Earlier in the year, I chatted to real-life AI researcher John Ayres, whose research compares chatbot advice with that given by proper doctors. Thanks for having me. So what made you turn your attention to chatbots? Well, there's a huge problem in healthcare right now, and that's the doctor is overburdened. But at the same time, millions of patients are sending messages and their questions are going unanswered or getting poor responses. So we turned to an AI chatbot to see if they could help handle the workflow and also improve the quality of the responses that patients get to their healthcare questions. So the way you've done this is sort of test whether the chatbot can do a decent job by kind of going to a place where people are already asking medical questions on a public forum, that is a specific subreddit where people ask medical questions and then a physician will give them an answer. So it's general medical advice, not sort of diagnosis. It can be general medical advice. It can also be some people are seeking a diagnosis. I would say the important thing we did here is for the first time we used real patient questions and real doctor's responses to evaluate how a chatbot could improve that workflow. You want to think as a human that there's something that humans can do that a machine just can't do, which is, you know, be empathetic. But actually what you found was the chatbot responses were more empathetic than the human-generated responses. That's right. The chatbot was 10 times more likely to give a response that a panel of doctors judged to be as empathetic or very empathetic compared to responses written by a physician. 
What about the actual kind of meat of the answer, though, the medical side of things? Well, our doctors, the panel of evaluators, they also preferred the quality and the accuracy of AI chatbot written responses compared to physicians. What sort of questions are people asking and what sort of answers were they receiving? Typically, people were asking about chronic conditions, you know, communications that they'd gotten from their doctor and they're trying to get more information, like how to interpret this result that they were simply emailed. Or other times they were in an acute situation and they're trying to decide, you know, do I go to urgent care or do I go to the ER? You know, I I swallowed a toothpick, right? That's what one patient asked. And it's like, well, you know, if that happens to you, it's it's pretty concerning. And so in this case, you know, the physician, you know, responded back, well, the risk of something bad happening is low and left a very curt response, whereas the chatbot was able to explain, yes, the risk is very low and you shouldn't be concerned and had empathy, but also explained that, you know, the person should go and seek emergency medical services if they have, you know, a certain array of symptoms. Now, which of those responses do you think that author is going to make them feel at ease? You know, if you just look at these questions and look at these answers, it becomes clear why the AI performs better. An AI chatbot can review all the considerations that it has, all the knowledge that's been taught. A doctor can't. A doctor has to sample, has to give that one answer. But we're not using it to replace the doctor. We're simply using it as an adjunct, you know, as a starting point. You know, what if an AI chatbot could draft that initial response and then the physician herself could then correct it, elevate it, improve it, and then send it? with more patients being helped with high-quality responses. I view this as a game-changer for patients. So many patients are desperate for answers. They turn to Dr. Google, you know, or they turn to their friends, or, you know, who knows where they turn, and they get information. It could be misinformation. It could be information that prevents them from improving their health. Here, we can integrate this in the healthcare center in a way to amplify how many people uh, our healthcare workers can support. And in doing so, and delivering high-quality, empathetic answers that patients are willing to accept and act on, maybe they'll turn more to healthcare and less to these other sources of information that we know may cause harm. Clearly, the best outcome here for patients and also healthcare professionals is to integrate this into healthcare centers. You know, I really do believe that for some patient populations, high-quality messaging could save their life. One of the reasons why these chatbots are able to give good information is because good information exists online and that's what they're drawing from and kind of consolidating. But with more chat-based software being used that's generating the information that those bots are then drawing on, is there a chance that in time the quality of the messaging becomes degraded because it's drawing on other AI-generated content that might have errors introduced? I think the quality here in this case is only going to improve. If we integrate this into healthcare, what if the chatbot could access your medical record? You know, when you write in and you say, I have a headache and I'm feeling kind of dizzy, your doctor may see that message and they may not remember that you're taking high blood pressure medication. And they may not remember to ask, did you forget to take your medication the last couple of days? As that could be a sign of hypertension. So, you know, that's really going to be the game changer is when this integrates into your healthcare record. And we make medicine less about you know, the grammar of responding to a patient's questions, and less about pointing and clicking and searching through the electronic health record, and more about taking that synthesized information and actually practicing medicine by helping people and providing action points based on those insights that were first generated by AI. The biggest surprise is certainly that a first-generation chatbot not trained to restrict its answers to 
robust medical sources was able to outperform physicians. It's really hard to be a doc. It takes a lot of time, a lot of training. And, you know, it's really promising the results that we saw. None of us expected on our research team to, to see this. And, and many of our colleagues who worked with us were like immediately, man, this is a prescription I'd like to give to my email inbox. And certainly we want to work towards that end to help integrate this into the workflow so doctors will be more satisfied. They'll, they'll spend less time worrying about verb-noun conjugation and more time worrying about medicine. But also, maybe more patients' questions will be answered and questions will be answered with higher quality and patients' outcomes will improve. It's a brave new world, John Ayres. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Associate Professor John Ayres is Vice Chief of Innovation in the School of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego. And that's the show for today. Catch you next time. In fact, it will be next year. See you next year. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.